Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. concluding today our worship series on Christ in Culture, this book by H. Richard Niebuhr, which if you had indicated you wanted a copy and haven't yet received it, it is in the back on this side uh, of the um, sanctuary, and it's in a basket there, and you're welcome to pick it up. And it's worth reading, although as I've said to many people, when you are reading Richard Niebuhr, uh, Google is your friend. There's a lot of things in here that are very dense and heavy, and if you have the opportunity to kind of put them into the Google search engine, you can, you can get uh, enough help and guidance. Unless you have a really strong background in the patristic studies, the early church fathers, it's helpful to go back there. And I have a strong background in the patristics, and I still use Google. So don't feel ashamed of, of looking through there, and hopefully, even if you think, you know what, I don't have the time or the inclination right now to dig through this dense book, hopefully at some point you will have the inclination to do so because there really is so much richness here. Uh, Richard Niebuhr shaped countless clergy, bishops, leaders in the church, uh, and laypersons as well in his uh, over 30 years tenure as a professor in a seminary. And so he has continued to challenge us to think about new ways because if you've made it through the book, you'll notice that he doesn't end with the perfect answer. Instead, he encourages us to continue to discern that in time there might be even more than the five positions that he puts forward on how Christ and thus the church can interact or inter does in fact interact with culture, which is human achievement, the things that we have created collectively and the things that we have adopted from innovative individuals within our culture. And so some of those positions that we have explored over the month of November have include a rather antagonistic one, uh, Christ against culture, as if the church can never be reconciled with culture. And so therefore we have to completely shun popular culture, and there are Christian denominations that have done this. There are those within almost every Christian denomination that have done this, but we by and large have not. Most of us are here are wearing clothing that have been innovated. Uh, some of us have really enjoyed breathable, stretchy fabrics. Uh, others of us really treasure zippers and Velcro, and so there's absolutely no problem with that. We came here probably in some form of transportation that is a design and technology of culture. We tend to listen and utilize culture in our communications. And so we recognize that somehow we have to interact with culture. What that looks like is what Niebuhr continues to encourage us to explore. And the second option was that it's Christ um, over culture, whereas uh, the culture is actually transfused and that is the only way that people understand Jesus Christ in the church. We are about to see a lot of those people come Christmas Eve. Those are people who recognize Christ in the church when the culture says it's okay, and the culture by and large does that twice a year. It does that at Christmas and at Easter. That's why you have a significant number of people that we only see at Christmas and Easter. And so we recognize that for a lot of us, we're going to be worshiping side by side and shoulder to shoulder with people who are of a completely different understanding of the culture. And as I pointed out before, you lovely people are here on a Sunday that is not Christmas or Easter. So you are not generally of that category. Although there are people who understand that there's a, there's a place for the coming of Jesus Christ and therefore the redemption 
of culture. These are people who see that there are pieces of the culture that can actually teach the church. These are people who look at the culture as an ability to continue to not only inform but hold the church accountable for the ways in which it interacts and the ways in which it evangelizes and preaches the word of Jesus Christ. Then there are the people that we explored last week. There are these dualists. These are the people who find that culture and, and Christ are in paradox. These are the people that have deep empathy in our church. They are the people that look at the state of the world, the suffering and the pain, and their hearts just erupt with sadness. These are the people who also tend to hold the church accountable for the ways in which it does not address what is going on in the world, for the ways that it will turn a blind eye or even its back to the problems of the world and seeking to have us be engaged, active, and evangelistic, getting us to speak Christ into the midst of pain and suffering and trial and tribulation. And so they have consistently throughout Christendom provided us an opportunity to look not only at ourselves, but how we engage with the world and whether or not we are effectively being vessels of Jesus Christ. But today, we have a very Methodist position. It's the position of Christ transforming culture. We understand in the United Methodist Church that this is fundamentally who we are. Even our global mission statement of the global church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We aren't just making numbers. We aren't just saving souls, as some denominations say. We believe that disciples do something, that their faith has form, and that because they have become a disciple of Jesus Christ, because they are striving to walk the path that he himself laid before us and modeled, that they are changing things. They are changing inside. They are changing things in their households and in their communities, and thus the world too shall be transformed. We have witnessed this throughout the history. In fact, we've witnessed this in Scripture. It's called the book of Acts, and I highly encourage you to read it before Pentecost because it is a time when we recognized that people were living out their faith in such a way that it brought transformation to the cultures in which they were living. Now, that wasn't to say that it was a smooth transformation. In fact, both of the letters that we read from today, the letters to Romans and the letters to Ephesians, let you know that there's some rubbing when Christ starts transforming the culture. And sometimes we have to figure out what that's going to look like in community. And so the people were constantly turning back to Paul and the, and the Pauline disciples and saying, help us figure out how to do this transformation thing. How do we do it? And this is something that we still find in the United Methodist Church. That's why there is divergence and there is great diversity in United Methodist congregations. We are not all the same. You could easily drive 20 minutes and find multiple United Methodist churches, and they don't all act the same way. They have different worship schedules. They have different worship feelings. They have different clergy. And there's clearly a divergence. There's not a whole lot of me running around. Right? So there's differences there, and we embrace those differences, and we look for ways in which we can learn and be enriched through all of those differences. And so we are cognizant of the fact that we are a people who know that things will bring us transformation. That's one of the reasons why the United Methodist Church has continually upheld its polity in itinerancy for ministry. That's why clergy don't always stay at the same place, because we recognize that there can be value in transformation when new clergy, new perspectives come, and that clergy are enriched by different congregations. It's one of the things that our system is modeled after, that not only are we supposed to bring transformation as clergy to the congregation, but the congregation, in turn, will mutually transform the clergy, hopefully making us better and not more bitter. And so that that way we will all grow together. 
And then we will go our separate ways because clergy will go somewhere else and you will stay and receive someone new. And then that process will continue. And that the blessings that I receive from you will one day continue to be visited upon and extended to other congregations. And that the same blessings that you gave to me, you will give to other clergy. And they, in turn, will bring you new things that I can't begin to do even decently, much less in excellence. And so that is part of our system. The transformation happens. We recognize that. It goes all the way back to our founding fathers of Methodism. Those men that were up at Oxford University, and they were good Anglicans for the most part, and they recognized that there was something going on in Anglicanism, the Church of England. They recognized that a lot of people were showing up on Sunday, and they were worshiping the Lord, and they were receiving the Eucharist, and then all of a sudden they went out into the world, and it was as if nothing ever happened. Nobody on Monday morning would believe that those people had been in church when it was mandated. It was part of the state religion. And there seemed to be no carry-on, no trickle-down effect, no evidence that they were disciples. Because come Monday morning, it was like Sunday had never happened. Can you imagine a world where a bunch of Christians go to church on Sunday and then suddenly you can't tell on Monday? And so John... Wesley and his brother Charles and, and other Christians like George Whitfield, they started to gather together and say, well, you know what? Maybe we can change that. Maybe we can change ourselves and then other things will change. This is the ethos and Methodism behind there is no personal holiness without social holiness. That it's not enough that we ourselves are transformed, that our hearts are molded into Jesus Christ, and that we begin to see the world differently and experience the world differently. We must use that as a catalyst for changing the world. That others should be impacted by our faith transformation, and that in turn, together, as we are molded into one in the body of Christ, that we corporately should bring about change into the world. And so John Wesley started to say, well, how, what might that look like? And so he and the others began to gather and were very methodical about this pursuit. That's why they became Methodists. It was a slur. It was a pejorative term against them that they redeemed. And they were gathering together midweek for prayer. They were praying together and for one another. They were searching the scriptures in community. They were sharing the illuminations that they had received through their own private readings and together. They were engaging in acts of mission and ministry. They were continuing to encourage people to come to worship on Sunday and to take part in the Eucharist and be transformed by its grace. But at the same time, they recognized that there were things that, they, that were impeding their ability to do this. They were part of a greater movement called the holiness movement where people were looking for holiness to pervade their entire life. But John Wesley started to look around and go, you know, when people are really hungry, it's hard to hear Jesus when your stomach is growling. He said it's really hard for people to focus on the Holy Spirit when their bodies are racked with pain and sickness. He said, we have to do something. We have to tend to the vessel so that the spirit can thrive within it. And so he started food pantries. He started grocery stores where people could come and get food. He started a common meal. And it was only after that they had eaten and had sustenance and their stomachs were settled that then they could hear the word of Jesus Christ. He started to advocate for the opening of clinics where people could actually have a pharmacy and get medicine. And these were radical ideas. And those within the church hierarchy said, what are you doing? That's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be giving people Jesus Christ. And he said, I am giving them Jesus Christ. Because John Wesley knew that if you went back in the gospel accounts, that Jesus Christ healed people. He healed them and then he addressed their sinfulness. 
He talked about how the body had become a barrier for people. And so he brought them food when they were hungry. He made food for them. He brought them healing and wholeness. And then he offered them grace. And it was under those circumstances that then they could truly embrace God's forgiveness for them and then be willing to pass it on to others. And so John Wesley looked back in the scriptures and found that there was this precedent for transformation. And he engaged in it, and it upset people. And they started to go, you know what, John? Um, We're not comfortable with what you're saying here, and we don't want you to do it in the church anymore. And so John said, that's fine, because the world is my parish. And he turned around and he started preaching on street corners, and he was actually preaching from windows, because he was a little short and didn't want to wear really high shoes. And John started to look for more ways to continue the message that God loves people whether other people think they are lovable or not. That God forgives all people and he started to preach this radical grace. But he recognized that in giving people grace it was going to change them. And that in allowing people to be vessels of that same grace that it should change everything. And that's what he preached and that's what he strived to live out every day and encouraged others to that same level of accountability, that if we ourselves know Jesus Christ, then we must share him with the world. And so he started to extend that message and hold others to the same level of sharing the evangelistic gospel. And as he did that, it continues to set for us this precedent that actually we've encountered before, that the world can be changed by our faith and that we can change the culture. We discovered this in the United States when a group of Catholic nuns were going out every day and feeding homeless children, orphan children that didn't have an adult to care for them or or the adults were ill-equipped and unable to because of their poverty. And so the nuns said, you know what, it's not enough that we go out every day and we give these children some bread and some water. We need to do something more. Jesus tells us in the great commandment that we are here to make disciples, but we also have heard him say in Matthew 25 that we are here to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked and give the thirsty something to drink and to welcome the stranger. And we hear him talk to us, even in the words of the prophets, all the way back in the Torah and in the Old Testament, that we are called to be a people who care for the widow and the orphan. So what might that look like? And they began to dream and envision and bring forth orphanages in this country. And it changed the way that the people thought about what we do with homeless children. They're not just vagabonds on the street. They're not just somebody to be shooed away. But instead, we provide a place for them to be clean, clothed, fed, cared for, and sheltered. And it changed the landscape of adoption in this country because they put their faith into form and created the orphanage system. It's a dramatic way in which we can change a culture. But we also know this because if you look back at a lot of the classical culture, a lot of the classical arts, we'll discover that the church was fueling its development and its pervasiveness in the Renaissance. That being equipped with all the gifts that people were bringing in to the church on Sunday morning, they were patrons of the arts. They were having people create art, whether it would be paintings or sculptures or music. They were, they were encouraging artistic expression by funding it through the faith and also using it to fuel the faith. They recognized that people just didn't want to hear esoteric words. They wanted to see things. And that's why you can go all over Europe and see the products of this. You can go into the Sistine Chapel and see where we have now depicted, and sometimes this is the double-edged sword of of patroning the, uh, the arts, is that a lot of people assume that the creation story is a big naked guy pointing at a big clothed guy in a bathrobe like this. And so sometimes we have to temper these things, right? We have to figure out how we're changing the culture. When we start to preach that the culture really does need to see 
right? And what we end up making are images, then sometimes we're undercutting our own message because they did what most people do is they, they transformed how they understood the culture based upon uh, the Christ based upon their own culture. So, of course, when you have a bunch of white people making culture, all of the images of God are very white. And that might be helpful if everybody there is white, but when everybody is not white in the world, sometimes that's not a helpful image to have. And so we've had to come back again and rethink about how we are impacting the culture and transforming the culture. We have had to continually engage in this process. And as we do this, we're being encouraged to recognize that Christ himself transformed culture. That Now, Christ doesn't spend a lot of time in his earthly ministry, you know, pointing out everything that everybody does. But he did take capital punishment and he transformed it. Very few people in the world look at that and see the electric chair. Very few people look at that and see lethal injection. Most people in the world look at that and think about the church in Jesus Christ. He was able to take that and transform it. And that's really what we're hearing over and over in Ephesians, is that Christ has transformed us and transformed that and is transforming the world. Because we serve a Savior who preaches to us from the book of Revelation. If you can get past all the weird beasts and 666 stuff. If you can get past all of that. There's a beautiful glimpse of the kingdom coming, as it says in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When heaven descends, it describes that Christ is seated in glory on the throne. And he says, look, see these things. Write them for they are trustworthy and true. I am making all things new. And he declares it, that transformation is part of being a Christian. That not only for us, but for our society and indeed the world shall be transformed because Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's part of what we recognize as Christians and as disciples. That we are being asked to engage in a transformative process, not just in here, not just in here, but out there that we are being expected to bring forth something new. And so we do pieces of this. We recognize, especially at Christmas, we're all about kind of transforming things. The Salvation Army, which, by the way, is a Christian organization that has strong ties to the Methodist movement. The Salvation Army goes out at Christmas, and people think, oh, those are the people with the red buckets and the bells. Those are Christians that are taking up alms for the poor. And then we start to see here, even in our trees, we are recognizing in our angel trees that we have the opportunity to be a vessel, a blessing for somebody else. And we know this is kind of part of our culture. A lot of people were coming in and goes, oh, good, the trees are up. I didn't have to tell them how to do anything. They knew exactly what to do, went over, picked out their ornament. In fact, they even knew what kind of ornaments they were looking for. I know that I'm looking for one the same age as my child so that they can participate. Or I'm looking for something that's a little more exciting than dental baths. Right? People are very aware of these things. And we tend to take it for granted that as Christians, we know that we give. We know that we bless. But we need to take a moment and reflect on the person that is receiving. There are people over at English Meadows that are sequestered. They are physically unable to leave that building. And many of them are not visited regularly by their family. And their friends may be sequestered in other buildings and in other areas and unable to visit them. And so when we choose to be a vessel of God's blessing in the remembrance of the annual celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are reminding them that they have not been cast aside, they are not cut off from God's grace, and that we who are part of the body of Christ, privileged to be here on Sunday, 
are able to be vessels of God's blessing for them and desire to be so. So that things that they will use every day will bear the mark of Christendom. That they will not be able to wash their hair without being blessed. That they will wear different things that are signs of somebody choosing to remember them, to think of them, and give them something. Because we were given everything in Jesus Christ. And then the other tree, the other tree can be a hard tree for some of us because it's really dark and depressing to think about a parent that has messed up, that has made some horrific decisions. Decisions that have not only landed them in jail, but have brought brokenness and pain and suffering to their family, that have brought isolation because it is not socially acceptable to have a parent in prison, because there are children that can't say where dad or mom is without bringing about bullying and self-shame and embarrassment to the family. And we could turn our backs on that and just pretend like that doesn't happen or think that someone else will fix it. But the truth is that every time we engage in that ministry, every time we choose to be a conduit between an incarcerated parent and their innocent child, because the United Methodist Church does emphasize that we don't visit the sins of a parent on their child. Children don't get to pick their parents. They are born into a life. And so we recognize that just because a parent has made bad decisions and is living out earthly punishment does not mean that a child should suffer. And so we become willing to bridge the gap between the two. In some cases, we are helping to sustain a very tenuous relationship. In other cases, we might be laying the groundwork for reconciliation because that is broken. But ultimately, we are reminding an incarcerated child of God that their child is still loved, that there are those who are willing to look past their felonies and their misdemeanors and extend grace to their family, to remind their child that they are more than the child of a felon, that instead they are a child of God, and that we want to be vessels of that, we want to serve, we want to reconnect, so that ultimately God may be able to restore a relationship that was destroyed because of sinful decisions. And so we engage in this ministry. But that's just one thing. That's one ornament, that's one tag. What else will we do? So I'm hoping that as Christians that we will challenge each other and challenge ourselves to be more intentional about how we think, look, and act at the world in Advent. And it's coming very quickly. It'll be here next Sunday. So as we do this, what I would love to challenge us to do is Focus on three people a day, three people a day, and talk to them and say something that we appreciate about them, something that we truly love and are grateful for, something that will remind them that they are a beloved child of God, that they are a being of sacred worth, and that we are grateful for them. Now, that will start out really easy on day one because you'll do the people you live with or the people you know, the people you like, and then it's going to get harder. Because most of us, if you start doing the math, don't really like that many people that we see every day. Most of us are going to have to start looking at the neighbor with the, uh, the perfect lawn that gives us crap about our uncut lawn, right? Most of us are going to have to start to get a little edgy here. And so what happens is we can practice on the people we know and love, but I would encourage you to say something unexpected to that person. I would encourage you to say, you know what? I love the fact that every morning when, when we get up, you are a ray of sunshine, that you just erupt with this joy and you are ready to go. And even though it takes me half a pot of coffee 
to start to even look like a human being in the morning. I appreciate the fact that God has gifted you with this sunrise. And it makes me think of Easter, that even before the sun rose in the sky, Christ was regenerated, resurrected. And it gives me hope that today I can rise to that level. Say something different, something that they wouldn't expect. Or start talking to people. You know what? I love the fact that my bus driver gets up at an ungodly hour and gets ready to drive more children than I would ever want to have in a vehicle to school every day. I, I really appreciate that. Now, she doesn't always do it with a ray of sunshine face, but she does it. And so we're going we're gonna to tell her that. I appreciate that you do that. You know, it might include talking to the person that really doesn't like your dog, right? You know, I understand that my dog is not perfect and is going on to perfection and training and in everything else. But if you will grant me some grace, if, if you will continue to give me feedback and help me to go on perfection, we will work with my dog. And ultimately, I hope that you will be proud of this, this loving creation that I love that you don't have to love and clearly right now don't. And that hopefully we will grow together, right? You've got to get a little creative with these things. Because the neighbor that doesn't like your lawn, whose lawn is perfect, that's the perfect time the next time you see him go, you know what? I recognize that my lawn does not look this great. And I know that you put in an awful lot of time and effort into this, and it shows. And I love walking out of my house every morning and just seeing how beautiful that is. I mean, you are really setting the bar high for the neighborhood. And I'm going to try a little harder. I'm going to try to rise up to that because, you know what, it does look good. It looks good, and it makes us feel good. And I appreciate the work that you put into that. Sometimes you just have to reframe things. Because there's one person in your life that you think there's nothing good about this person. They could be the Antichrist. I know. We all have them. But the problem is that you've got to figure out something that they do or say, or maybe it's something that they don't do or say, right? Maybe they're that person that you could tell that you really annoy them. You can tell, right? You know that person that you just, you just know that you annoy them. And you say to them, you know what, I know that sometimes I push your buttons. I know I do, and I'm sorry about that. That's really not what I want to do. But I do appreciate the fact that you don't constantly tear me down. I appreciate the fact that, you know, when, when you probably want to say something to me that you don't. And, uh, you know, I want, to wor I want to work on that. I want to work on us having a better relationship that maybe I won't annoy you so much. Maybe I need to dial it back. Maybe, you know, I need to pay more attention to you. Maybe there's something that I can do. And if you can help me, then I would, I would really like to, for us to focus on that because you are important. And it's important to me that we have a good relationship because I serve the Prince of Peace. And peace isn't tension-filled silence. Peace is harmony and community. And I would love for us to live like that. I think these are the things that we can do. And if we will commit to three, one for every person of the Trinity, each day, by the time Christmas comes, we will not only have transferred, transformed our mind, but we will have transformed other people. Now, once you've done your three, you can go back and do some of the first three that you did. But you've got to do three different people every day. Every day, three different people. And by the time Christmas comes, people are going to be like, when did you get so nice? What happened there? Well, you know, you never used to say things like this. You know, it's when you have the opportunity to say to people, you know what, I love the fact that you always do this. I love the fact that whenever I come, you know, into this office, you always greet me with, with a smile. And I know that no matter what happens, if I come up here, you're going to be happy. You know, I, I know that you are going to be a bright, shining spot in my day, and I appreciate that. So part of it is just looking to see how you can affirm other people, because is that not what God does to us? God affirms us. You know, you're a raging sinner, and you don't listen to me 98% of the time, but I still love you. I know you. I know you by face. I know you by name. I know you by your sin, 
and I know you by my grace. And so God chooses to be in relationship with us, and we have to choose to be in relationship with others. Because when we start establishing the rapport, when we open up the door for us to have a positive engagement, then what we're really saying is, Jesus Christ, flood the space. Change me, change others, change everything. Because that's what you promised. You said you would make all things new. And we believe with all that we are that God does that. That's why the church chooses to celebrate Christmas. It is a choice. It is not a biblical mandate. It is not something that we don't get to have our lights and our cross if we don't do it. It is a choice. We choose to celebrate Jesus Christ being born because that is a moment in time when we recognize that things were never going to be the same. Not us, not the people that we love, not the people that we don't love, but that the world would never be the same. And so as we are moving into that time where we are preparing our hearts, our homes, our families, our neighborhoods, and hopefully the world, as we move into that, may we be cognizant this year that we truly can transform others and the culture by our words, our acts, and our willingness to be disciples of Jesus Christ. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.